This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 287 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show MMA legendary coach Greg Jackson. Now, Greg is obviously known for training so many of the elite in the UFC, Bellator, and other MMA arenas, but lesser known is behind the scenes he coaches both the military and law enforcement and is also deeply involved in Deliver Fund, which is the anti-human trafficking organization led by Nick McKinley, who I had on the show about a year ago now. So as I've said in many of these intros, you, the audience, power the scope of this podcast. This is a free library with incredible minds from all around planet Earth. And my goal is to get these episodes to every single person who needs to hear it because it will literally change their lives. So there's a couple of ways you can help. Firstly, go to the app that you listen to this on, whether it's Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, subscribe to the show. Leave feedback and most importantly, leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are on all the charts of those apps. And then take your email, social media, word of mouth, and just share. Tell people about the podcast. Tell about an episode that really resonated with you. The more we share, the more this grows, the more people literally around planet Earth can improve their lives, their health, and their mental wellness. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Greg Jackson. Enjoy. Greg, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and being patient with the technical side for uh, coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's my pleasure. Now, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? My planet Earth? Uh, well, 
It's probably maybe not one centralized planet, but it's probably about 12 little satellite planets moving around some bizarre center of gravity that's able to hold it. I would be, I think that'd be more accurate uh, <laughs> assessment of my situation at the moment. I keep jumping, I keep planet jumping. Right. And the, but you in uh, Albuquerque today? Oh, as far as my actual physical location, I am in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Absolutely. I thought we were talking metaphorically. No, literally, I am sitting in my house in Albuquerque, New Mexico, one of my favorite places on the earth. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start chronologically at the beginning. So where were you born? And then just tell me a little about your family dynamic. Uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. I was raised by um, two amazing people, Jim and Chris Jackson, uh, from the Midwest. Uh, they were products of the 60s in that they actually believed in helping people and uh, kind of uh, had that hippie ethos, but not as like a uh, a trendy thing to do, but like as a lifestyle choice. So uh, they, my uncle had moved out, uh, gone to the Peace Corps, my uncle Pete, and uh, had moved to southern New Mexico because he was doing the Peace Corps in Mexico. And they came out here and kind of fell in love with it. And uh, both of them dedicated their lives to uh, my my mother was a cardiac nurse forever. And my father uh, for 30, I don't know how many years, basically as long as I can remember, uh, worked for an organization called Disability Rights New Mexico, which advocates for handicapped people uh, both legally and, uh, and kind of uh, – uh, What's the word? You know, if you, if there's uh, like some of the mental institutions here were a little basically torture chambers, so we shut those down and that, stuff like that. Oh, that's incredible. I want to stay on that for a moment then. So firstly, with your mom, what was her observation um, being a cardiac nurse of the growing ill health through you know terrible nutrition that we have here? Knowing, you know, obviously through the, the fitness and nutrition work that you do through your athletes, um, you know, what does she observe uh, from a cardiac nurse perspective of, of the health of Americans in general? Well, I think she was at the she did the she was kind of the last line like she was the emergency like when you were in a lot of trouble with your heart. So a lot of people were very elderly. There were a lot of obese people, but I actually have never sat down with her. It's a really good question. I'll do that immediately. I've never sat down with her and saw what what her take on it was. We were raised ultra healthy. Um, we weren't allowed any sugar, me and my little brother as, uh, as children, um, we were eating grape nuts and Nutrigrain cereals, that kind of stuff. So, um, we germ with every meal, Brussels sprouts, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the kind of the, the seventies diet that when people were really beginning to understand about eating healthy, I think. Um, so as far as that end of it, so, um, I, I think that it, it played an impact on her, but she saw a lot of people that were very elderly as well that actually had, you know, worked, labored their whole life and, and uh, uh, you know, eaten relatively natural and healthy because New Mexico is a very rural place. We had a lot of access to that stuff. Um, and so, uh, yeah, she was uh, – I'll have to sit down and ask her about that question, but certainly it's an epidemic. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Well, it's been coming from a, a healthy – Eating perspective, I mean, she's probably witnessed this, this with the uh, the way that many people believe that these diseases are irreversible and they need their statins and their blood pressure meds and their cholesterol meds versus, you know, that the actual healing properties that just a good diet and good uh, exercise regime can give you. 
Uh, that's the foundation, right? I mean, you might genetically, you might need some of that stuff, but uh, you're, you know, it, it, if you have a great foundation of good of good exercise and good food, that's a that's a heck of a place to start. <laughs> you can't really build a building on uh, on an empty basement, you know. Absolutely, and it's funny with your father. I mean, it's the two very pertinent careers that your parents did. Um, I recently encountered an issue where my little boy um, was subject to what we call Baker Act here, which is when they send them for a three day hold in a psychiatric ward. Um, right. And that's being abused terribly in the schools at the moment. They're using, you know, any, any child that's even remotely challenging, um, they just shoot off to there. So I wonder what his observations have been of, of the, you know, the, the progress or regression of psych ward use in the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think he's, uh, my dad is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And, uh, uh, I'm certainly he has well. My dad never talks unless he has a well thought out argument, or he'll just stay quiet. So <laughs> I'm sure whatever whatever his opinion is has been well thought out and researched because that's just the kind of guy he is. Um, but yeah, he uh, the, in in the 80s especially, um, a lot of the mental institutions were uh, were pretty nightmarish, and so um, he did a lot of, in, in tandem with his team and other people, obviously. But uh, he did a lot of work to to kind of get that straightened out. So I'm super proud to be his son. You know, he's he's an amazing guy. Yeah, they sound like amazing people. All right, well then, so obviously you are coaching the world's elite when it comes to MMA. When you were young, what were the sports you kind of connected with? You know, I didn't. I wanted to do martial arts ever since I can remember, and that's pretty much all I cared about. Like, I did soccer and stuff uh, as a kid, um, and you know, you play kind of street football and, and that kind of stuff. But I was never captured by sports, really. It was just um, it paled in, in comparison to my love of martial arts. So everything about my young life, I, I cannot remember a time where I was not doing some kind of martial arts since. Um, it was it was very very early on um, that that I had that relationship with it. So uh, it, it's uh, it's been kind of that's been my focus. I get I have I don't know if it's hyper focus or yeah it's the only thing that can keep my attention. I'm not sure which end of the spectrum that's on, but that certainly is the case. <laughs> now I I personally I mean I, I got enamored of the martial arts very young. I'm very very small skinny child when I was younger and. Um, you know, I think that intrinsic urge to protect yourself when you feel kind of vulnerable. But I kind of, excuse my language, I basically fumble fuck my way through <laughs> through a, a bunch <laughs> of martial arts. Started sure. with, um, I think it was WTF Taekwondo, then Shotokan for a while, then ITF, and then mm -hmm. and then boxing, uh, Muay Thai, then Jiu Jitsu. Each of which hum a humbling me and b showing me the strengths and weaknesses of the one before. Usually by right. getting my ass kicked by whichever the next <laughs> style was. So what yes, lead me sir. lead me through the the styles that you kind of you know the path that you took within the martial arts. Well, uh, I mean that's a tricky path. So it, um, growing up, my motivation was because uh, where I was raised was a uh, uh, a very um, it's a very uh, ch economically challenged place uh, in the United States. We're one of the worst, unfortunately. Uh, so, and I grew up kind of in the poorest part of, of Albuquerque-ish. It's kind of outside of Albuquerque. It's called the South Valley, um, and very Hispanic. I was one of the few white kids there, so they had this very um, Hispanic uh, machismo in that time, in that in that culture. Um, and so, basically, they didn't really care about if you were good at any sports or if you could do well in school. All they cared about is if you could fight. So, I had to figure out how to do that. 
uh, pretty quickly. Um, and so, uh, that was my, my motivation. So I never saw a Bruce Lee movie or never really, you know what I mean? Like it was, uh, my motivation was very, uh, practical need. So that being said, the styles that I bounced around in, uh, it pretty much any and everything you could do, any, anything that somebody could teach me, I would go and learn. Um, and so from every weapon you can imagine, I've taken some kind of course in it. Um, uh, but never, it would always go, have to go to an immediate need for me. So um, I never progressed very far in anything just because uh, I eventually would end up wrestling around. I come from a family of wrestlers and uh, basically doing a, a very early version of mixed martial arts um, with like boxing and kickboxing mixed in. Just and again, just need based. Um, so that for me, it was all of uh, I, I only wanted to be kind of a reality martial artist. Like I didn't care about competition. To me, it was just about protecting yourself um it was usually involving more than one person all of these things so then when uh the ultimate fighting championship came out and i could see the gracie family who were like phds right like i'm in kindergarten and these guys are like amazing they still are uh you got to see oh wow that's really cool so then i had opened a school up by this time because uh my friends were training with me and and we were fighting and um, they kind of wanted to know how I was doing the things I was doing when I was getting in fights. So we, uh, I, I opened my school up very early. Um, that came around and then they wanted to do the, the bare knuckle competitions. And I didn't really think, you know, I was just a stupid kid. I was so young. Um, but I was like, ah, it's not realistic. You know, it's not one on one. I didn't really have any interest in that competitive, uh, market, but they talked me into it cause I can't say no to my friends. And so, uh, I still can't say no to my friends. And so, uh, I, they, we went and we did some competitions and they started, uh, I thought we'd do okay, whatever. I wasn't, you know, it was, it was what it was, but, uh, we actually won everything. And so then they were addicted and then 25, seven years later, whatever it's been here, I am talking to you. So my path into MMA was completely like, I didn't want it. I didn't want to be a martial arts coach. I just wanted to be a teacher and I would have been as happy as a clam. Um, but they, I got talked into it. <laughs> So you touched on the fact that you had a gym. You were 17, is that right, when you had your gym? Yep. So, yeah, I opened at 17. So tell me about that because that, that's a unique thing in yourself, especially in America where you know, you're not graduating until 18 normally. What was the road to you having your own gym? I graduated right around – it might have been right before I graduated. I started. It actually was because I was uh, teaching out of a uh, another school. So there was a guy named um, – Frank Trujillo and he had like a kickboxing school and he let me teach my students there. He's a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, and he let me teach my, uh, in the South Valley there, start teaching students there. So that's where I really opened up my first school was shared space in a school with somebody else. Um, and yeah, it was just a ballsy move. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing business wise. I had no idea. I mean, my parents were basically civil servants, you know what I mean? They wouldn't, they didn't know anything about business or, or, uh, you know, the, the pitfalls of all of that stuff. Um, they had dedicated their lives to helping people. And I, I kind of took a little bit more of a self-centered, well, I'm just going to start a business and, you know, uh, do martial arts. Uh, and so I had no idea what I was doing, made terrible mistakes. Obviously, if you're a 17, 18 year old kid, you're going to make terrible mistakes anyway. But, um, so, uh, that that process was I would work other jobs. So I was like a, you know, back when we had uh, the video stores where you could go and rent VHS tapes. I managed a video store. I was a security guard. I uh, did construction, uh, whatever job I could get to kind of pay the bills while I was trying to build up my my uh, 
my business clientele, so to speak. Um, and, and luckily, uh, people started coming, and so I was able to build it up kind of a little bit more at a, uh, year after year. It was probably a year or two there, and then we went to a, uh, basically somebody rented me their garage. So then, but it was a nice big garage. So then we went there, and then finally, in probably ninety another year there, so probably ninety four, maybe beginning of ninety five. I forget. Right around there, I uh, I had my first my own gym. It was a twelve hundred square feet, a thousand square feet, something like that. And I lived in about half of it, maybe three or four hundred square feet. I lived in. I forget exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where it really started kicking off. Brilliant. Now the other thing is you, you talked about um, you know training your friends and winning what. What was it about the way you were coaching them and obviously the way obviously you're coaching yourself as well that was defeating these opponents in these early bare knuckle fights? Uh, I think um, what we did, we did a kind of a combination of uh, the the grappling competitions at those times and then the like, the, it was different rules no matter where you went. So sometimes it was open palms, sometimes it was closed fist. It just depended on where you were. Um, I'd be hard pressed to remember where was what, but, uh, um, the, uh, I, I think that we had, we were, New Mexico is a fighting town. Like it's, we have a long boxing tradition here. We have a long kickboxing tradition here. Uh, it, it is a fighting town. So we already had kind of, we, we came in there with some toughness. Um, uh, especially in those early days, there was, uh, if you had a couple of good techniques and you were pretty tough, you didn't get tired. Uh, you, you had a good chance of winning. Uh, and that of course got more and more complicated as people got more and more educated. But, uh, uh, I was able to figure out some good techniques early on and, uh, we used them well. And then the competition would actually teach us. So we'd go to these competitions and other people would try these techniques against us. And I'd be like, Oh, I better come up with a counter for that. And then that would lead that tree would lead to other branches where I'd say, well, we can attack here and do this. And so that was kind of the process. Cause when it comes to MMA stuff, I'm all self-taught. I never had a jujitsu instructor per se. That's the one Brazilian jujitsu is the one art that I never really took lessons in other than the coaches and stuff helping me out and showing me moves that we have, uh, you know, in, in around and, and you would go and, and watch the moves in competition, but I never, I don't have any jujitsu belt at all. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And there's probably pros and cons to that, isn't there? Cause I mean, you you see it every so often in the UFC, for example, you, you'll have a karate guy or, or a judo woman, you know, come in and just start smashing people around. And it's because everyone's been so focused on that one path that someone comes from the outside and they bring something new to it. Well, I think that's a, you're right. And, but a little more microchasm there, we would go to the grappling tournaments and actually win the grappling tournaments against the, the, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners, which used to drive, I mean, some of them were really cool, but used to drive a bunch of them crazy, crazy. And that's actually where we made almost more of a name for ourselves. Like where I met the tap out people that uh, did a clothing company that was called tap out. That was very influential in my early career. Um, we met all those guys because we would show up to these tournaments and, uh, uh, I think we still might, I don't know if somebody's probably somebody's passed it now. I don't pay attention, but we still might have like the grapplers quest. We might still be the, uh, we might've had the most wins in that as a team. Uh, I got inducted into their hall of fame stuff. So the tournaments that we used to do grappling, we would come in with a little bit different, uh, a little bit different ways of doing the same maneuvers. And since everybody else was kind of drinking from the same water, I think that gave us an edge for a while. Right. So then what what was there like a not not a moment or a person but like a a year or or some sort of peak where you kind of transitioned from the 
the learning the coach, the doing the smaller tournaments to suddenly realizing, oh my goodness, now I'm coaching people that are actually winning in the UFC or Pride or whatever the the pinnacle was <laughs> at the time. No, I don't think because we did we did that. We did the bare knuckle stuff. We won a lot of that, and then we won like the smaller organizations, like the King of the Cage. We took all their world titles, and then Diego Sanchez won the the reality TV show, uh, the Ultimate Fighter one. He was the first winner of that. And then we've had, I don't know how many we've had wins since then, but it's a lot. Um, and it was right around then that, um, that everything changed. So it wasn't so much me going, okay, now I've got, you know, these, these high level fighters. Um, I was just a cocky kid. Uh, I, I think that the MMA changed the, the ultimate fighter, that television show. That's like, for me, it's like, you know, BC and AD like before and after uh, that's, that's how, different MMA became like so it was immediately mainstream immediately when I said oh we do mixed martial arts some people would know what I was talking about because before that show no one knew anything or they saw it vaguely oh that's you know that's cage fighting yeah that's pretty crazy but it started actually getting traction after I think that was 2005 2004 somewhere around there um, but that's when I noticed that all of a sudden like I was making more money but really I would have been happy in my little place making the money i was making just because i could you know you get to do your art you get to do what you love all day it's so fun you get to hang out with your friends um but uh that that's when things really started to change in the mma world for me anyway yeah well i heard you in one of the interviews talking about um you know the audience craving entertainment craving that rocky you know mm -hmm. rock'em sock'em yeah. robot style and, and it's interesting because the griffin bonner fight in that same um, series was was basically the pinnacle and I think if that had been a technical jiu-jitsu finish it wouldn't have had the impact but basically because they almost beat themselves to death <laughs> sadly that yeah, was what it, it took to, him, it hooked him yeah we'll always owe those guys for sure that it, it hooked him hard yes right well then again speaking of, of an interview I heard um, for me personally as a you know as a smaller frail kid even though ironically I grew up on a farm so I probably wasn't as as weak and feeble as I actually <laughs> thought I was probably you know? not <laughs> um the the martial arts were absolutely an integral part of of you know the the path that I began and and it definitely took me to become a fireman and and you know some other areas and I heard you talking about martial arts versus fighting. Now, much later on in this world that I'm in now with, you know, the first responders and PTSD and the mental health that I delve into, um, mm. I totally understand, you know, what you're talking about because fighting, fighting alone to me seems like a, uh, there's an element of almost fighting demons. That's a, a symptom or a side effect of some trauma yep, inside the head. Sure. Whereas I found and like I see the martial arts specifically being the an antidote for that you know the, the the cure because of the discipline and the respect and the humility that is a great way to overcome that what do you witness with your fighters the martial artist versus the the brawler as it were uh usually the martial artists are much happier overall people um fighters are a lot more peaks and valleys right everything's great everything's terrible everything's great everything's terrible and the martial artists seem to be uh, a lot more even keel um, and a lot happier, especially later on in life. Um, so I'm a big advocate of and but again, I'm not any I'm, everybody that comes to my school are basically grown ups. I mean, you know, who's a grown up really. Right. But uh, the, so I don't force it on them any more than I would force anything else on them if they just want to do the sport and they can handle their own stuff. And then that's how they want to live it. Then that's fine. Um, but I always encourage that martial arts side of it if I can, uh, just because of the, the, I think the benefits of, 
following a martial path rather than a sporting path is much more fun for me. Um, but that's just me. That doesn't necessarily mean that other people agree with that. So I, I think that the martial arts is a very healthy way to move through life again, because of those qualities that it gives you. Um, especially if you've got, uh, uh, snakes in your brain, like a lot of us do. And, and it gives us the ability to help try to control that. Um, so, uh, Whereas fighting, I feel like you you can control it only because you're hyper focused for a period of time, and then you kind of like you just kind of float around a little bit until you can hyper focus again. So, um, I, I think it'd be, and I don't know how apt this analogy is, but it's almost like having a a good diet all the time versus yo yo eating, right? Where you get huge and fat, and then you lose all the weight, and then you get huge and fat, and you lose all. It's just not that healthy for you. But um, again, I'm a big believer in kind of your you are a, a grown up human being and uh, you, you'll have to make your own choices there. Here's what I think. Um, but I'm not going to I don't I don't own anybody. I'm not anybody's master. I, I don't like that. The connotations of that. I don't I don't want to fight for mastery over anybody. Um, so uh, other than if. It's a it's an actual physical confrontation, which is very different to me than, you know, hanging out with people. Um, so uh, those two things are very separate for me. And so if, if they want to choose the martial arts path and we've got a lot of fighters that do that and some of them are just, hey, it's the sports, my job. I love it, but uh, I don't need the rest of it. Right. Now, do you are there any doesn't have to even name the names, but are there any stories you have of a broken man or woman first entering, whether it's addiction, you know, just mental trauma that through the martial route through your gym that they, they ended up overcoming adversity in that way. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stories like that. I'm trying to think of one specifically. Um, but, but certainly you get that a lot wherein, so the mar I have a saying that the martial arts attracts the crazies. It's kind of like psychologists. You very rarely meet normal psychologists. Sorry, psychologists. It's true. <laughs> um, right. Because they, they're, what was their impetus to get into psychology is usually wanting to understand either something about themselves or the mind. So you, you have a, a kind of an, an interesting perspective to start into that line of work to begin with. And I think fighters are very similar to that. Um, I think that, uh, some of them want, just want to get mastery over what they fear or their, you know, their emotions being crazy. They want some sort of semblance of control over, uh, and again, it can be led by fear. It can be led by the feeling of helplessness. It can be led by many things, but, um, yeah, I think that the martial arts has the power and I over and over, you see that again on the martial arts side, which is why I love it so much. The, the power of the martial arts to heal, um, it, you won't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a great fighter, but then the martial arts, the fighting should be the, if you're a martial artist, the fighting should be the least important part. Now it doesn't mean it's not important. Like you can't just throw punches in the air and call yourself a martial artist. It's a, it is a martial path, but the rest of it, you're only going to be fighting unless you've really made some terrible life choices. You're, you're not competing. You're going to be fighting for probably less than five minutes. Um, unless you've really gotten into a situation. Uh, so the rest of all of that time should be on the practice and the practice itself should be giving you all of these, uh, tools and, uh, uh, disciplines, ideas, if you will, that will hopefully improve your personality a little bit, not like a self-help book where you're looking outward, but inside where it's, you're kind of having to push it yourself. Um, so I, I think that there's many, many stories of people that come into the martial arts world and it doesn't have to be MMA. It can be any martial art. 
Um, but because of the discipline, because of the the other things that are required in to be a great martial artist, uh, it can give back to you in that in that way where you can kind of master fear or trauma or um, especially the big one I see is is fear. That's the one that that usually I see push most people into it. Yeah. Now, with you, know, you, you touched on a point. It's something I've talked about a little bit. Is the the kind of the journey versus the destination philosophy where when it, I mean, for example, let's take podcasting. So, say I want to hit X amount of downloads. You know, I've I've got to benchmarks where I've wanted to get, and obviously for me, it's not an ego thing. It's every single person that hits play hears someone who has value, who's actually going to enrich their life. So, it's a really positive metric to follow. But each time I get there, it's like, oh, okay. Well, then we'll go to the next one now. And it's the same right. with, with with belts. When I you know had belt systems in arts that I've done. How do you kind of steer your fighters to, to, to kind of get the eyes off the prize and focus more on, on, on becoming a little better every day? Well, that, that actually helps out in that um, that is on the martial side. So I always tell them just let go of the winning. Obviously, you want to win and you have to have the pride of winning. And the, the desire, the will to win is a huge important aspect of both the martial arts and the uh, fighting element of it. But um, the – every fighter that we have has a concurrent personal growth plan where I, I kind of put together a little map for them says, here's what you need to, okay, you know, you're wrestling on a macro level, your wrestling is terrible. You need to work on this or, you know, you need to do a jab or whatever it may be that where you have a hole in your, uh, in your technique and then you have game plan specific. Okay. Now we're in a fight camp. And for this next six weeks, you have to do these things to get them into trouble and do these things to stay out of trouble yourself, whatever it may be. Um, so in that end of it, it's on their, on their personal growth plan where technically and, uh, mentally they are pushed. So in other words, if you get really tired in the second round, then we're going to do stuff to push you so that you get used to that feeling of fatigue. You kind of embrace it and you look forward to it. Um, so that's one of the things that you do on your personal growth plan. Um, you wouldn't necessarily do that on a game plan specific thing because it's going to be something that's that's almost exclusively done out of camp where you can kind of acquire this this uh, mental toughness or a, a higher level of mental toughness. Uh, and the same thing with technique. So to answer your question, we have a, kind of a personal growth plan that everybody goes through. Um, they're not personality based, right? Because who am I to judge somebody and say, well, you need to be better at you know, hugging your mom every day or whatever. It's like that. That's being that human being side. Um, that when you're a grown up, that's on you. Uh, our side is to try to get you on the on the fighting side to try to get you to be the best you can be as a competitor in the sport. Right now, obviously, you know, th there's so many disciplines now f within MMA, and and you know, there's only so many hours in a day, especially if that's not someone's full time path, as it were. How do you kind of allocate? time wrestling time you know doing jiu-jitsu time doing muay thai to, to try and get that perfect balance without overtraining right well that's why we have a lot of great coaches um that are much better coaches than i am uh and they're all specialists kind of in those fields um but yeah a lot of that's really tricky and you have to do it's very individualized uh you have to see where they need the work so then you can allocate what time you need to do how much you need to do in these areas because those are the, the work that's the work that you need. Um, but, um, it's a tricky, that's a tricky tightrope, right? And that's half of, especially on the personal growth side, that's half of it. It's just, okay, you're going to go to these many group classes and you're going to have these many private lessons, um, with these coaches. That's it's, it's a constant tightrope act. You have to constantly adjust your balance. Yeah. 
Now, on the other side of the scale, something I talk about a lot with the first responders is rest and recovery, because you get a lot, you know, the, 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 the hard chargers of our profession, they're doing these crazy shifts, 56 hours a week, yeah. not sleeping, and then going to their CrossFit gym and then going to jujitsu. Yep. Um, but the, the sleep deprivation side and, and understanding how detrimental that is is something I'm trying to bring education to them so they realize, again, you're not overtraining and you're, you're working uphill. It's not like you get to go to bed every night. You're up, you know, two, three, three nights a week. So with your athletes as a coach over the last 20 years, what have you witnessed as far as the importance of sleep and, and rest days or active recovery days and, and performance? Big time. It's it's a it's a real deal. And again, it's the same thing. The hard chargers will come in. You know, they'll try to work out four or five hours a day. They'll they won't take days off. That's a big one. I have to force all of my guys out of the gym. I like forty eight hours off, but most of them can't. Just they they'll go nuts. So uh, at least one day to a day and a half off. Uh, is a big deal in this in fighting camp. And then after the fight, I don't want to see you for a month or so. Like just, it's such an intense process on the fighting side, building it up, going through camp, your body's going to break down. Your mind's going to break down if you keep doing that over and over and over and over again. So yeah, uh, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, right? So just uh, so much of my, is my job is personality management in that I say, no, you got to get out of here. I don't want to see you go relax, have fun, watch a movie. Don't think about fighting. Don't think about anything. go, play video games, go, I don't know, for a walk in the, you know, by a stream somewhere, whatever it is, uh, get out of here. I don't want to see you because that, you know, it, it, again, it's that if you're always on the front lines of battle, eventually it starts to take its toll on you and you can't keep that pace up forever. You'll hit a breaking point where either mentally or physically you will break and then you're forced out. Like either you, you're injured or you're just mentally so cooked that you, uh, you, you're not, you're not doing anybody any services. Yeah, which is exactly exactly what my community suffers from. Um, so with, um, again, with 20 years evolution, watching the strength and conditioning world change, um, what kind of training principles have you found works well with your MMA as far as strength and conditioning? Uh, well, again, that's individualized and it's personal growth. Some people need to be stronger. Some people need to work longer. Um, it needs to be periodized for camps. That's for sure. You don't train the way you get ready to train for a fight. So for six to eight weeks out, um, is very different. Your, your, uh, volume is less, but your intensity gets higher. Um, and then it's very in athlete dependent. That's what I've really learned is that there's no one magic formula that works for everybody just because people's personalities are so different and their bodies are so different. What they can, what some people can withstand, other people can't. So, um, you really have to do a personal, it's, it's, old Sun Tzu, right? You have to know yourself and know your enemy. You really have to understand it's a super individualized thing. And that's why there's no one formula that like is on the internet that everybody does. And it works the same for everybody, right? Like your diet's going to be a little bit different. Your there's the same parameters, obviously, right? Like you're, nobody's eating. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people are not eating cheeseburgers three days or three meals a day and then getting ready to fight camp. But listen, I'm sure it's been done. We'll probably get like 18 dudes. That's what I do. I diet. And that's, that's, if it works <laughs> for you, that's great. But in the aggregate, most people, you eat clean. But when you, if you're losing weight, some people lose it 
quickly. Some people float it off sleeping. Some people don't. It's such an individualized thing that a coach really is a decoder in that they have to be able to understand what the athlete needs and then set them up in for success in, you know, having a nutrition specialist that's very malleable or, uh, I'm sorry, um, what's the word, uh, flexible, uh, and says, you know, uh, uh, this person needs this, this person needs that calories in calories out. Here's your, all your stuff that's over my pay grade, but the, the, having that ability to evaluate everybody individually is a big, big deal. Yeah, I think that's where you know we failed a lot with um, she's just teaching strength and conditioning and and uh, nutrition is everyone has their twelve you know DVD set on QVC that's right, going to be the exactly. magic pill and it's like no yep. I am not the same as an Inuit or an Australian Aboriginal we're all very different you know DNA and and makeup and you know a three hundred pound linebacker is probably going to eat a little differently than a ninety pound ballerina. Hundred percent. That last phrase is really it, right? Like it's, it's just you. You never know what your genes are going to give you. I mean, there's giant guys that come from, you know, I don't know, Scottish background, and then there's small. You know what I mean? Like it's just such a, it's such a random dice roll that you, you just have to take what you're given and and uh, work with it. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about one more thing, you know, within the MMA gym, and then transition to to the tactical space. Um, about let me see when was it 2004 um i moved to la for about three years and when i was there shootbox opened up a a a school and i have never been to the real fight club from the movie but i think it was pretty damn close (laughs) what i experienced it was basically two hours of having the shit kicked out of me i had my jaw broken nose broken you know, eardrum perforated. Um, got to spar with some cool people like Anthony Johnson, who used to kick the shit out of me too. Um, mm-hmm. I've been a great punch bag for some some big names, but uh, never never fought. You know, specifically. But my point being, the the detriment of such hard sparring all the time. I felt you know everything did hurt. I was foggy. I had headaches. I was you know all kinds of stuff. And then I hear people like Joe Rogan and some other people um, talking anecdotally about gyms starting to. To, to pull back from hard sparring all the time in preparation for fights. What's your philosophy as a coach on, on, on the level of contact during training versus an actual fight? Uh, yeah, well, obviously fights are full on, but, uh, yeah, we, we've also pulled way, way back. We have one day a week where we go pretty hard, but not like we used to. Um, and again, that's just, as you learn more about CTE and its effects, um, we were all ignorant in the eighties and early nineties. Um, uh, as to what that even was. And I'll, I'll tell you, I was ignorant until the 2000s. Um, so yeah, we all did kind of that same methodology of just like, well, you're fighting to get ready to fight. That's what you do. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't try to hurt each other because that would just make everybody injured and no one could fight. But we, you know, you're going at it pretty good. So yeah, we, we are at one of those that uh, has pulled way back on heavy, heavy hitting. Um, it doesn't... It doesn't seem to make a large difference to us, but all the concussions that you get do make a large difference. So uh, on the positive side, it's, we seem to f- be faring pretty much the same. And on the negative side, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to have conversations when we're 70. Yeah, well, exactly. Absolutely. All right. Well, then transitioning to the tactical space, I want to go to the military first. Obviously, you trained some soldiers like Tim Kennedy, who I had on the show a couple of times, actually got to roll with a couple of months ago. And when I say roll with, like he was the cat and I was the mouse that was kind of half dead. He was just toying <laughs> yeah. with. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. So how did you get into to working with the military? 
Um, so I have friends, obviously, in the military, and uh, they kind of pulled me into a lot of that. Um, so some of them uh, have great programs, like uh, Greg Thompson has a SOC P program, and uh, so I've gone to help him out and, and train some of the units that he's done, uh, worked with um, here in Albuquerque. I'm the honorary commander for the pararescue uh, schoolhouse out here. So I've helped those guys with combatives. Um, and then uh, it's a it's a it's a big community and a small community, as you probably already know. So um, other people express an interest in, hey, you help those guys out. Would you like to come help me out? Uh, and so, of course, I can't say no. Um, and so that's kind of the, my job doesn't have a lot of social value to it. Right. Like I don't uh, I'm not like my parents. My parents are like real heroes. Like I'm I just basically hold a bucket and yell at people. So <laughs> it's a nice chance for me to get, I don't charge anything to do it. So I, it's a nice chance for me to actually give something, contribute something back for you. Like a fireman, like you, you spent your life in service to your community. Well, I don't have anything like that. So, um, my, my way to give back is the only skill I have, which is, um, uh, the combative side as well as the, as the MMA side. So, and it's a lot of fun for me because it's, you have so many different parameters to its mission specific stuff. Very rarely are the same techniques used, right? It's almost, it's a very, very different space. So it's a lot of fun to try to figure out the best ways to do that in the new spaces, um, and, and vetting it and, you know, fighting around with it and stuff is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, pararescue is an interesting special operations. I think that's the one that closely mirrors firefighters versus SEALs, Green Berets is more like the law enforcement side. But I, if I was ever going to be, and this is obviously if I ever even was able to pass the test that they have, I think, you know, a lot of us, the, the rescuer side, the thought of going in just to pull someone out and get them out is, is so, uh, there's so many parallels to that. And I've had a couple of those guys on the show, but that's a, that's probably a, 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 you know, it's not, it's not, they're not known as much as they should, but I think it's an, an incredible member of the special operations community. You have to be so good at so many things, right? You have to be able to do all your, your firefighting pieces, but then you have to dive, jump, whatever it takes. And then all the medic side too. Um, and yeah, we've, uh, very in the pararescue community should be very proud of all of the amazing people they've had come through there. Uh, and I'm super honored just to hang out with them there. I'm very lucky that all these like super awesome people want to hang out with me for 10 minutes. I consider myself very grateful. <laughs> well, so are there any areas where, um, you know, what you brought to those communities, um, there was kind of like aha moments because I know with with the introduction of combatives, they went from almost like the old school karate to you know more jujitsu, muay thai, you know the weapons uh, training that they do. What what were areas that you kind of had had that perspective and like okay this 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 is kind of dated now. This doesn't work in today's um, battleground. You know let's try something different. Well, it's just about being practical about what you have. And again, I've had some very good. Um, people help me out. L luckily, I've been able to go to a lot of the schools. And so I get to see their perspective. Um, and I have a lot of great trainers that uh, that have a lot of uh, battle time experience dealing with that on the on the military side. Um, and so they can say, you know, here's what we do. Here's why we do it. And as long as you can articulate reasons that make sense to do things, uh, then you should do it. And, you know, these guys have had 
20, I've been doing this for 20 years. Well, they've been doing that for 20 years. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I have a lot of great uh, people to help me and have taught me over the years. And I continue to learn, man, I couldn't imagine a worse death than not learning something new. So I, I love to go and get updated on what the, what the different programs around the country are doing, um, and seeing the, that current stuff. So on the military side, that's, um, you, my piece is, so I don't, I have been trained how to clear rooms. I've been trained to do all of this stuff, but I, I don't teach any of that because I'm not a been there, done that guy, right? Like I wasn't downrange for 15 years and a lot of these guys were. Um, so, it, it, but when you put a hand on a weapon and you understand here's our force array, right? Like, um, you need to secure this, but you, you know, this, these parameters lead to this being secured, so that you can transition to this, that kind of stuff is very important. Um, and so my piece usually in the combative side is the, uh, a little bit of the defensive tactics, like how to get yourself out of bad situations, and then a lot of subject control. How do you deal with no shoots? So when you're clearing rooms in the military and uh, you are not going to shoot this person, what do you do with them? Where do they go? Why do they go there? Uh, where do you put them? How do you you know, and, and so you have to learn which each individual unit, some people just run through them. Some people want to handcuff them. And it depends on what their mission is. And that's where it gets really fun because you have mission specific things to do, uh, with the, with the military, what I always call, uh, basically assault or combatives, um, you know, things that you do through there. And so as long as you are, you studied what other people have done, you can't, the, the problem with some of that stuff, especially with the weapons is you can't just like make it up and give to people. Like it has to be vetted. You have to figure it out. Um, it can't, you can't just be like a 1980s ninja guy. That's like, Oh, well, you know, if somebody grabs my rifle. Here's what I would do. You have to vet that you have to, I mean, at the bare minimum, you should be getting role players and fighting with your guns and seeing how that goes and, and that kind of stuff. So on the combative side, life, it's life and death. So you can't just give it to somebody and be like, you know, if, if you, if you try a new technique in MMA and it doesn't work, yeah, you lose maybe a lot of money. You lose your pride, but you're still alive. You'll fight again the next day. That's not the case, especially uh, with first responders and militaries. Like you, your stuff needs to be on lock. You need to be able to articulate why you're doing the things you're doing. And uh, and there's still and the other thing is to be open enough that there's more than one way. There's nothing worse than saying, "Well, this is the way I do a two-handed deployment with a pistol, and this is the only way it is, and here's why." And then somebody else comes along and says, well, what if I pin you against the wall here? So, well, no, now this is the only way. You know what I mean? Like there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, just like there's more than one way to shoot. If you're running with uh, team guys, it's all high portent. If you're running with uh, with uh, uh, group guys, that's all low uh, – uh, not low ready. Craig Jackson, I'm having a day. Uh, yeah, low ready, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, high port, low ready. And, but yeah, – you know, that shooting style works for them. They can put the rounds on the target and the time allocated. Then who cares? Um, you know, and, and you have the argument saying this is why you do this. And this is so for me, it's about being flexible for the mission parameters um, and then putting the correct techniques to set them up for success, whatever that might be. And then figuring it out is a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned as well about realism, realism in training. And that's something that I think a lot of our department's battle is there's a push against realism you know from um, risk management and you know the the unions or whatever it is whoever in that space feels threatened in some way by by making it um realistic but that's how you learn if something works you can draw all day on a whiteboard and, and arrows and you know you go here and he goes there but the reality is until you try it and you realize half the people fell over or got stuck in a hole or whatever it was you're not going to really figure out 
you know, if these tactics work and then if they don't, how the hell are you going to get yourself out of that situation? Exactly. And especially um, on the combative side, you, you have to, um, because the room clearing is all above my pay grade. Again, I do it. It's fun. I enjoy it. Um, I'm never going to take eight of my friends and break into somebody's house and clear the house. Like it's just, that's never going to be a thing for me. <laughs> so for me, it's just something fun to learn and to make myself a more effective instructor to go through these schools, to understand, okay, this is what these people have to deal with. This is the points of domination they're looking at. Um, now how can I best assist them with the information that I've been giving and perhaps try some new ideas? No, that's not going to work. That's a little dangerous. What about this one? Let's do it for you know six months, eight months, and see how that goes with simulation. Um, and then we'll talk to operators about it and get the you know what I mean. Like so, it should be a very long process in doing that um, for the for the military side. The police side, if you're going to transition into that later, I guess we can get into. But that's a little bit different. Yeah, no, let's do that now. That's a perfect segue. <laughs> How do you like that, right? Um, anyway, the mil- I, I will say about the military side that um, I. Myself and, a, and a, some other very high-level combatives instructors, I uh, kind of have a group ta- chat at this point because there are so many, what I call the 1980s guys. So, like, in, in the 80s, as you remember as a martial artist, and in the early 90s, there were those guys that wanted to blow you through the wall with their key power or, you know, like the mis- the ninja death touches and all that stuff. Well, those MMA took care of a lot of that because you could dojo storm them. You could say, okay, you do your stuff, I'll do my stuff. Oh, I don't want to kill you. Well, okay, you try to kill me and we'll fight. And, you know, we'll be friends afterwards. Let's just see what works. Um, You get a lot of those guys transitioning into the combatives world now because it's that same thing again. Well, I can't really teach it to you because, you know, I have to to shoot you to show you it works. So you get a lot of that, those guys, and you have to be very careful with those guys. And the other thing you have to be careful of on the military side is MMA. Like MMA is not combatives. Like you're not going to kickbox somebody. You're going to use knees, you'll push kick them into the middle of a room, something like that. But you're not, if you like drop all your gear and start fist fighting somebody in a room, um, I, I would be hard pressed to see the, your decision matrix there. I'm not saying it can't happen, you know, stuff happens, whatever, but that shouldn't be your first line for sure. So there's a lot of MMA is a one-on-one fight in a cage against a person that doesn't have anything. It's a very different thing than a guy that has tools on him dealing with a dynamic environment and in the team setting both pro for against you and with you. So there's a lot to – you have to be very careful if you're a department or if you're a military organization looking for combatives. There's a lot of really great programs by a lot of battlefield-tested techniques out there. They're really, really good. But I will say if you are a military unit, make sure that you vet your guy just because they know jujitsu doesn't mean they it's great sustainment training. Like that's great to to train like every day to keep your skills up. Jujitsu being the best one by far because it's so much controlling, but that that doesn't mean that you want to bring those guys in and have them start teaching your guys, you know, how to do what, you know, I don't know, tornado kicks with their pistol in the hand, whatever they'll come up with. So I would say be, <laughs> I would say be careful for that. So then that's the same thing. The same caveat goes in law enforcement. Um, so law enforcement, again, what I found working with them, I started working with APD in their mid 90s. Um, and so I've been working with them forever and a day. Uh, and what I found in law enforcement, again, it's mission specific. You have some law enforcement entities that are very team tactic oriented. In other words, you're almost always going to have somebody within a minute or two to back you up. Then you have some state police officers that you're five to 10 minutes, even longer sometimes. So what does you, what does your unit need 
to set you up for success. Um, and, and so working the police is a lot easier for me because I, you can go so much more hands on with it. Um, and I, the, um, because I've been with them for so long, it's a lot easier to see, okay, you know, you can have an articulable force array starting with verbal, moving all the way through your force array to getting them in handcuffs, or if you have to turn it into a defensive tactic situation, transitioning into lethal, whatever it may be. But um, y- y- you need to be able to articulate why you're doing each and every uh, maneuver, you know, when you decide to go hands on, when you decide to, 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 uh, step back and go to less than lethal, whatever your decision matrix is, ha- it can't just be like, well, grab them. You know what I mean? Like you have to try to verbally deescalate you then verbally deescalate while you're holding them in these control positions. Um, and so on the police side and a little bit on the, on the, on the, um, military side as well, but I, I came up with kind of these fighting for these positions where you get them in control that you can kind of move into handcuffs and really utilizing teamwork and stuff like that. So the the police stuff has been a super lot of fun for me. Right. Well, I mean, Albuquerque is obviously very lucky to have you on the doorstep. What have you witnessed kind of nationally in, in, in your 20 years as far as the ability physically and, and um, uh, jujitsu-wise of the average U.S. police officer? Well, I mean, here's the thing is you have to cut police officers a huge break and here's why. In a perfect world, you would do your shift, maybe work out at lunch, go after your shift, you go to do a jiu-jitsu class for your sustainment training so that you're rolling around and controlling people and then you would go home. You got kids, you got someone's got to pick them up from school, someone's got to drop them off. You're exhausted. You're and as you know, if you've had a good run, let's say you've had a good 2-day run Whereas as your fireman, you have not slept, you haven't sat down. You know what I mean? Like the last thing you're going to do after a 48-hour marathon is go train. Well, that can happen to you several weeks in a row. So it's super hard to do sustainment training unless you've got some kind of an amazing schedule. If your significant other picks up the slat, you know what I mean? Like so there's a lot of caveats and a lot of people are just exhausted. I mean by the end of that day, you're so mentally exhausted, uh, especially if you have any kind of uh, PTSD issues that you're working with as well. I mean the whole thing is so exhausting. Uh, it's hard for people to get sustainment training. It's in, and in my opinion, sustainment training keeps you from being exhausted, but not everybody has that same experience. So, uh, you have to cut them slack there. Um, now obviously every, there's good and bad in everything. There's good and bad police officers. I, I know great police officers. I know police officers that aren't so great. Um, there's good and bad in everything. Uh, but I will say that, the knowledge base is getting better now as far as being able to control people without injuring them. That is a, a, a very good trend that is happening. Um, but still, there's there's a lot of police officers that do what I call the, the day after. And that's – they'll get into a knockdown drag out where they almost – uh, get in some real trouble. And then the day after they're like, I'm never going to let that happen again. And then they'll start doing the sustainment training, uh, wherever it may be. But I will say that nationally, I think the combatives programs are coming along better. So the police officers are definitely more educated, uh, now in total, uh, than they, than they ever have been before. Um, I think they're getting more professional, at least in Albuquerque, uh, especially there, we're learning, we're growing, where people are uh, seeking out training. I see that a lot. I work with a lot of police departments nationally as well, and people are seeking out training. I'm really seeing people looking for uh, a simple way to to get effective training. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that. So I think that we're nationally we're moving in the right direction as police officers. Now, obviously, I'd like to see everybody a lot more healthy, um, a lot more. Uh, 
proactive, but there's just so many variables to deal with. It's it's very hard for police officers. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I personally think it should be inbuilt into their day. I mean, I think police, I agree. Police and fire agree more. should be paid to train. Um, but and then this project is I I say this a lot. It's it's a, a double pronged project where I hold the firefighter, police officer, soldier accountable, and then I hold the administration in which they work accountable as well oh that's a great that's absolutely right so that's absolutely the right way to look at it and there's a perfect example we had sheepdog response come to ocala a couple of years ago Tim ah, and the guys. yeah yeah and well, i went through it and then it was right literally i mean i think it was a week after the parkland shooting that we had here so some anonymous donors came in and donated a bunch of money and opened up all these free spots for first responders, at police, fire, oh, medics. That's great. And the issue we had was they didn't even fill the law enforcement the first day. And the second day, they had even less guys show back up the second time. So right. even when it was put on a platter, that goes on, you know, really the ownership of, of the individual then. But then also it's on the, the administration to be like, we need you guys to go or, you know, promote it or whatever. But it was, it was so hard. And, and myself and a few other guys really pushed it and, and promoted it. But again, I think there's a lot of fear because a lot of police officers know right. that they're not where they need to be. But that's where you start is day one. I mean, I, I got my ass handed to me. I hardly ever shot before. I mean, I was pulling mags out of my pocket because I didn't have a, a belt even. Uh-huh. But, you know, that's what you do. You, you swallow Absolutely. your pride and you start today. Well, that's that's very hard, especially when you're looking to police officers to be in control of a situation, right? That's their job to kind of come in and de-escalate and take control of situations. Um, yeah, it's, that's a uh, for a police officer to be able to do that is is very scary. I will say that one of the most dangerous trends that we have right now in policing is because we need so many of them. We are lowering our standards, and I, I do worry about that. The vetting process of letting somebody be a police officer or a fireman, I think, is super important. Um, and I see that uh, we uh, – I'm not talking about any department in particular, but as a trend, we, we just to get bodies on the streets – when you lower, really lower, I don't mean lower a little bit. I mean, really lower, like letting people pass that shouldn't be there. You're just setting them up, the everybody up for failure in five, 10 years. Um, so I, and I, I kind of left that. I think nationally as a police force, we are getting uh, better, better educated. We are becoming more effective. Uh, we're addressing issues like race and uh, uh, misogyny and, and a lot of stuff. And I think we're making strides there. I really do. Uh, but it, the vetting process is going to set us up for failure. I will say that's one hole that I've seen. Absolutely. Well, an area that I've spoken about a lot is just that. Like, I've witnessed great fire departments that the bar was set incredibly high. They had no problem cutting you if you didn't make it. That ended up, you know, having great people all the way through the ranks. And then I've worked for a department where the bar was buried underground. It was so low, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a it was a ripple effect. And that same standard then promotes through. Um, and what I've seen is whether it's the SEAL teams or whether it's, I mean, you for example. When you have an, a, a department where there's a huge, you know, high level of professionalism, and you know you're respected by around people, will seek you out to join your department. But when you when you bring that bar down, it has the the reverse effect, in my opinion. Yep, I couldn't agree more. And it'll be interesting because we need so many. I mean, police and firemen are so overworked. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see 
how we solve that problem. It'll, it'll be an interesting, uh, it's going to be an interesting time, I think in the next five or 10 years to see, because they're actually going to be well-trained, but they're not, like you said, they're going to be the individuals that aren't going to want to go to the sheepdog training, right? They are, their bar was never set that high, so they never really want to do it. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, one more just real tangent question, but I had Bass Rutten on a while ago and he was... Uh, that's my man. Yeah, he was awesome. I mean, this poor guy just had that uh, that neck issue. Um, yeah. But he was talking about striking and obviously, you know, in MMA, you know, you've got the four ounce gloves, you're able to strike with a closed fist. Um, what's your take of striking in the street? Are you Are you a proponent of the open hand strike? Yeah, for sure. Well, I use whatever tools it takes. The situational dependent. Um, if I'm fighting more than one person, I will both close and open hand. Like I, I don't, I don't ever say you always fight with a closed fist. You always fight with an open palm. I think there's time for both. If you're just defending yourself, um, police officers should never be hitting with closed fists. I mean, if they have to transition to lethal, they're not going to be able to hold anything if they shatter their hands. Uh, so if you get into a situation, especially if you're a state police officer on the side of a road and you've got to fight two or three people, um, you should be transitioning to tools and, and using palm strikes and elbows more than any more than palm strikes elbows are where it's at um so palm strikes are great like you, you, it, listen if boss hits you with a palm strike you're going out like but that's boss root that everybody can't generate i mean everybody can hit hard but there's only one boss root and he's amazing um so i i like elbows i find elbows are a little more effective than anything else um but i'll uh great finger jabbing to the eyes, that kind of stuff. Um, a street fight's a street fight. So I, I try not to make it as Marcus's Queenberries as possible these days. But, um, uh, as far as when I'm teaching people, but, uh, to me, it's about problem solving. It's really, if you want to learn martial arts, then basically you're learning how to solve a problem. And that problem can be an individual. That problem can be a group of individuals. It can be an individual within an environment. It can be an individual out on, you know, in a park, um, so it's just about using your environment, um, using whatever techniques, be it a closed fist. Sometimes closed fists are appropriate. Sometimes open palms are appropriate. But I never want to say to somebody, this is the only way you do this. I would say do it. And if it's not working, it's not working. Now, obviously, if you break your hand, you're going to have a longer day. So that that's one mark against closed fisting. But I've seen uh, and experienced fist fights where I've had my hands closed and, and seen other people with their hands closed and had zero problems with breaking our hands. So, you know, it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Actually the, the worst thing I've had in my hand was a bone bruise sparring. One oh, time. Yeah, I, then, I would think I would have rather broken my hand than it was like six, six <laughs> yeah, months. Probably so. <laughs> yeah, probably so. That's probably accurate. <laughs> All right. Well then I want to transition to deliver fun. So I had Nick McKinley on the show, um, oh, doing amazing things with, uh, you know, human trafficking. So how did you find your way into that organization? Well, actually, Nick, uh, I found my way to Nick through the combative side uh, because he of uh, where he used to work. Um, and uh, so that I found him through that originally. And then um, uh, we became friends. I actually met. Did he tell you how we met on the side of a mountain? No, he didn't. Uh, I actually met him when he was in pararescue. So before he went to the agency, he was a pararescue man. But this is when I was young and I was up uh, on the side of a mountain training with uh, a bunch of fighters. Your your friend Greg can be a little uh, ridiculous about mountain runs and as, as many fighters will tell you and still do. Um, we we push it pretty hard. So I was up in uh, on the in the Sandia Mountains in New Mexico in the middle of kind of a snowy day. 
Um, and I'd taken some Australian fighters that had never really been in snow before. Uh, and we were romping around and we weren't really training, having fun. Anyway, long story short, the guy was, this guy was up there. We heard him calling for help. We went, I find Nick, Mc, I went back. It started blizzarding pretty hard. I find Nick McKinley, um, who I didn't know was Nick McKinley at the time. And, uh, I kind of guided him around the, where we had heard the guy, but the guy had already moved. And so then Nick was worried about me becoming like a, a, uh, a uh, liability because we're romping around in full on blizzard conditions at this point. And I'm in like jeans and a puffy jacket, which is what I'm always in. And, uh, so Nick's like, I think you're going to get hypothermia. We better get you off the mountain. And you know, I, I'm helping out people. I'm running around in a blizzard. You couldn't find a happier Greg Jackson. So, uh, I was like, really No, I'm all right. And again, I, I grew up in the, in the mountains of New Mexico. Like I do winter camping all the time and, uh, it never, the cold never really bothered me. But Nick, Nick was like, ah, you're probably going to get hypothermia. So anyway, that's how I met him. Then years later, I met him again through the uh, when uh, he was working in the agency. And then he got out and started to deliver fun for reasons I'm sure I already told you. So then he said, hey, do you want to help out? I'm like, yeah. But I didn't even know it was a thing. Like I'm so ignorant that I didn't even know that human trafficking was still – I mean I grew up in in the hood. But you don't really see like, oh, that's human trafficking. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't even know what indicators to look for. Uh, so I, I was very surprised that, uh, that slavery still exists and I was raised by hippies that, uh, yeah, slavery is about the worst thing. So, uh, I immediately jumped in to see whatever I could do to help out. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting in the conversation because as a, a firefighter paramedic, you know, I look back at my 14 years and, and, and was kind of asking myself like how many of the people I had that were, you know, clearly of the less fortunate end, um, how many of them were were enslaved in some way, shape, or form, whether right. it's in, in prostitution right. or whether it's internationally. And we don't think to, to look for that. And it totally changed the way I looked at the patients for the last bit of, of my career. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, right, like you just, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and I think that you and I were both in that same box. Yeah. So were there any kind of stories that stuck with you of, of people you came across that were, were victims or, or success stories of some of the agencies you work with? <laughs> Yeah, the the success stories are the ones that uh, that I really like. I mean, how hard Nick works. He's an animal. Like the, uh, you can see why he did as well as he did uh, when he was downrange. He's an animal. He that guy just goes and goes and goes. It's very rare that you find somebody that's just stubbornly good, just like like a honey badger of good. Like he's just. He just tries to do the best thing all that he can all the time. He's never there's no ego with him. He always tries to set everybody else up with success for success. You never see him being like, well, uh, I'm the guy that really, you know what I mean? You never hear that from him. He's always pushing credit off to others. Um, he, he's just a very impressive person to me. So um, watching him really uh, uh, push hard and 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 see. He, he's super happy when he helps even just one person. Um, he'll tell you the story or, you know, I'm, I'm involved now. So, uh, you, you'll see the, uh, the kind of the fruits of his labor and, uh, it's very impressive. It's also very addicting. Like once you, once you help people out, that's a hard thing to stop, man. Like you get, you're like, you're a fireman, you've been doing it your whole life. Right. Like, so that, that the ability to like, oh, I helped it. I went home and I actually helped somebody out and listen, the, the next day it might go all bad for them, but Today I helped him out. That's a that's a powerful emotion, um, and and I think uh, uh, you, so. When you see, you know, I mean, there's we had in Albuquerque we had uh, a, a uh, one of these traffickers keeping uh, the women in literal dog cages, like 
you see that and then you get them out of the dog cages. You know, we, we work in tandem with police. We're not door kicking down anybody. We're, we're private citizens, but we work in tandem with as he's sure he's explained. But when, when you know that that's not going to happen to those people anymore, that's, a, that's pretty addicting. Yeah. And I talk about that with, with the, uh, the kindness component. What is so crazy is it feels that there's an intrinsic reward system in the human body that when you do something kind, it feels good. And when you're an asshole, it feels bad. And yet it seems like such a hard sell to get people to be nice to each other. Well, I think that, again, that gets that gets hidden and layered and, and uh, you know, it just takes one one bad person to ruin everybody's day. Um, and, and I think that that it gets hidden. I think I think that I, I like that. Now, listen, I grew up where I grew up. So there's fish eyes. There's dudes that don't matter what you do. They're either they are genetically made that way or they've been institutionalized so much that you will never fix them. There's just no fixing them. Like I get your lefty recidivism programs like I understand completely that you're trying and God bless you. Keep trying. But you're not. There are dudes that I know that you just you're not going to fix either. They're mentally ill. And they need meds. Or they're just they just become this this thing, and there's no there's no coming back. Um, and then there's people that I think that uh, that are layered, right? Like there's there's spectrum. There's like there might be a little bit of good under them. Um, but I think most people are are I I have to believe that most people. I mean, I'm like I don't know if I'm as far as Noam Chomsky, where like everybody's like, you know, everybody needs their best self, and it's these institutions that kind of beat them down. I, I, I don't know. I think that. I, I'm on the personal responsibility side too, and I'm sure he is if, if you put him against the wall with it. But uh, um, I, I think that it you see people giving homeless people money, and I, and there's no reason they have to do that, right? Like so, uh, I, I think that everybody's kind of good. It's just that you you get guarded, you get uh, you try to hide that part of you. It's it's kind of considered weakness sometimes, unless it's not in a situation like you where you're a professional and you do it for a living. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons that that uh, that people aren't just immediately good to each other all the time. Yeah, no, I think uh, what I see is 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 that middle group where they just need to be led, and I don't mean that ever in a patronizing way. Just the first person to say, "Hey, let's all pick this car up and get this person that just got run over," whatever. It is. And you see videos of that all the time. So it's just a shame that some of the the shitbags of the world seem to get so much airtime. <laughs> well, that's human nature too, right? Because that's entertainment. And that's, <laughs> that's what I've learned with MMA, right? Like it doesn't have to do with any they people like to listen to them for whatever reason. Again, there's a lot of varied psychological stuff that's over my head, but uh uh I think that uh that's entertainment. That's all that is. Yeah. Now what, what do you think of the the WWE esque theatrics that have kind of uh become part of the landscape of of some of the MMA press conferences oh, a lot these days. Of well, I think it's super important. Like you have to remember what is the purpose of this. And I, I, I don't remember the interview that I talked about this, but one of the books that changed my real perspective on it was that uh, Trickster Makes This World. Um, it's a venting it is, it is, I mean, if you want to go deep in it, I'm sure it's all mortality denial, right? Like we're all know we're going to die. So we're trying to fill up the space in between that time to do other stuff. Um, I, I get that you could bottom baseline that, but I think that it's, it, you have so many complex emotions when you're dealing with entertainment and one of them that that offers 
you is the old you remember the old days in a movie when the bad guy came on like you really hated the bad guy like you were allowed in that space to feel actual hatred like you saw what this guy was doing and you did not like the bad guy and and now obviously that with the the moral kind of complexity the bad guy now is sometimes bad and parts of them good i mean it's like hyper realistic and not realistic at all at the same time which is always funny to me but uh uh, I, I think that you need to just have a space where you let that out, where you vent it out. And so I, I see a lot of that at MMA, which is why I don't bother like reading comments or anything, because it's it's that person's angry and they need to express that anger somewhere. And this is where they choose to do it. They pay money to watch people fight to be inspired. But then also just like I do you hear the booze and the hatred and the um that that venting has to happen like in and you can do it in healthy ways like through the martial arts but we're just not there as a society right like it's this is the way that we have decided before lent you have mardi gras right like you have to blow off all of this steam so that you can be a decent human being um and i think that that is that's what wrestling figured out professional wrestling figured that out because there used to be a lot of actual like catch matches catches catch can matches and but those don't go to script like the bad guy would win and leave everybody grumpy you know what i mean like so it's much better to have it be a uh have a theatrical uh component to it because people watch fights some people like you have been lifelong martial artists and you watch fights because you appreciate what's happening right like you watch it like a football fan watches a football game they're like wow did you see the way he did this play to that play that's how you watch it but most people watch MMA to be inspired they want to watch fighting to be like wow that guy he was so beaten down and he didn't give up and he came back and you see because when people say good fights they don't talk about technically shutting somebody down although they can but it's very very obvious right like they just run through you they get in the mouth they beat you down oh that was a good fight because they saw you know, this total dominance thing. So that's, that's the inspiration to dominate. Right. But they also have the inspiration to be brave. It's, it's inspirational much more than it's technical. And then there are a lot of fans that really like both, right? Like that they like both, but I would say that by and large, my experience with the most vocal fans are the, the ones that feel like they have to vent something. So I, I don't think, see it's a bad way at all. Um, I used to be like annoyed by it. Like, what do you mean? This isn't a beautiful fight. Like, did you see what it, but now I like, Oh, I understand. Okay. I, I get it now. Yeah, I just love to line up all the ones that call these, you know, MMA stars pussies for, you know, cowards because they didn't fight someone and just line them up in the cage. <laughs> well, right, right they'll never turn. do that, right? Because that's no. not the point. They don't <laughs> actually think that they are that. Or if they do, they're just projecting, right? They just want – there's this anger inside of them and they have to – because what kind of a fan you are is what kind of a person you are. Like a fan is, a, is like a view – like how a fighter is a view into the soul. Like you know how brave the guy is if he's all cut up and, and he fights back. You know that somewhere in that person there that bravery exists well you have that exact same mirror back on the fan if you're a fan that's angry and yelling all the time then i see into who you are you have this anger in you and man i hope that you figure out a way to get around it um if you're like a there's so many fans that are super positive cool people man they come up and like i love your fighters and what you did and or the to the fight i watch them to the fighters and say man really appreciate you that was so cool you know what i mean and those are the kind of guys that are grateful about life and you know they want to express that that gratitude as well they're venting that gratitude so it's uh i, I think it's such an important element to have a, a theatrical kind of something to talk about with your friends it's a social it's a cohesive social thing right like you can talk about 
you go to the, the proverbial water cooler. So it brings everybody together at witnessing the sport. It's not something that you do by yourself because you're talking to other people with it. So I think there's a lot of positivities, even in the negative fan stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, then, so we talked about theatrics from, I just wanted to, to touch one other topic before we go to some closing questions. The other side of the spectrum for me, unless it was a complete act that has been, you know, withheld for a decade, Georges Saint-Pierre was always, to me, the, the, the epitome of a martial artist and the epitome of a gentleman as well. What was your experience training him and, 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 um, especially when, when he started seemingly learning uh, a style that he wasn't even that well versed in and then ending up beating an expert in that in the cage <laughs> yeah yeah uh george is that he's a martial artist like george fights um but he's a, and he loves the lifestyle of a martial artist uh but uh, he is he is one of the most pure martial artists I've ever met. He loves if he ever got caught with something in practice or he's training in jujitsu or whatever, he would always be so excited and want to know how you you know, how did this person catch George? How did he how did you get me in that submission hold? And he'd have to learn it right after his fights. He'd be like, what did what did I do wrong? Why couldn't I finish this? Like immediately after his fights, he just loved the martial arts so much. Um, so to, to, it was such a, an honor and a pleasure uh, to, to be around him for, for a lot of those fights. Um, he, he really exemplified, he, he did not, he was not putting on an act. He was not Muhammad Ali. Um, he was just George. He, he was very honest and he, uh, he always said what he felt and yeah, he was, uh, I was always super impressed and still am super impressed by him. Yeah. Yeah. He was asked for inspiration to watch. That's for sure. Um, all right. Well then I want to trans- transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. You mentioned, uh, was it trickster makes the world yeah tricksters make this trickster makes the world makes the world okay are there any other books that you love to recommend you've already given me one Uh, on which subject on any subject so the most influential book that i've ever read is girdle escher bach by hostedler um that is the that book had the most influence on the way i come at the martial arts by trying to look at these kind of ubiquitous underlying strategical principles that govern everything also the limits of reductionism through girdell's kind of unreachable truths um yeah uh there's a lot there uh systems on medicine anyway there's a lot there so uh hofstedler's beyond brilliant um, and that book for me is is kind of his magnum opus. It's it's a it's a uh, a brilliant brilliant book. Also, um, I was raised by my mentor uh, Jim Dudley, who I didn't mention, but uh, he was a guy that taught me. He would take me out in the deserts, walking for days at a time, teaching me about uh, math and science and philosophy and stuff. Um, and he's a huge Bach fan. My father and mother are a Beethoven, and my uh, my mentor Jim Dudley is a Bach guy, so I was it was always very conflicted as to who was better. Anyway, I'm nerding out on you, but uh, and of course anybody that doesn't know who Gerdell is, go study him right now. Talk about one of the smartest human beings to ever walk on planet Earth. And uh, uh, Escher obviously became my favorite artist after reading that book, um, and how they all kind of do the same thing in their own way. Um, it's a brilliant book. Excellent. Actually, funnily enough, um, speaking of classical musicians, my now ex-wife, my son's mother, um, 
wanted I got to choose his first name, which is Ty, and she got to choose his middle name, which is Amadeus. She's a huge Mozart oh, fan. Mozart, so yeah. I don't know how it's yeah. gonna serve him later in life, but <laughs> uh, that's good. No, that's great. I, I uh, I'm a huge Mozart. I'm a again, me and my 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 dad and my brother feel that Mozart is a little too airy and flowery from them. I'm like, you guys are crazy. Mozart's the man. Anyway, <laughs> we'll do another hour on that, so probably shouldn't. <laughs> All right. Well then the same question, but a movie. Are there any movies that you love? Oh yeah, I have two two equally favorite uh, the seven and they both have seven in them, weirdly, uh, the Seven Samurai uh, is a uh, great. There's so much happening in that movie as far as the martial spirit, like how to give back selflessly. Um, there's so many things I admire in that movie, uh, and then uh, the Seventh Seal uh, Bergman. Uh, with Max von Sydow in it, holy cow! Like another th- movie that has like so much philosophy in it that you, you have to watch it like twelve times. And somebody like me, I have to watch it twenty four times because I have to work twice as hard as, as somebody with normal intelligence. But uh, it uh, it's just a, such an amazing movie that has so many little things that you miss, things that like oh, um, and of course it's well known for uh, playing chess with death. That's his, the big thing, but the ability to distract death while his friends get through like this. So that, that selflessness of uh, sacrifice that, uh, that I find very, uh, very noble. Brilliant. Yeah. I think I've had seven Samurai recommended before, but not the uh, seven seals. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, next question. Is there a person you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, holy cow. A lot of them. Um, yeah, let me. <laughs> that's a, boy, that's a that's a deep pool. Yeah, um, let me. Uh, you know who you should talk to is a guy that's probably one of the most brilliant police officers I've ever met, Rob DeBuck, and he um, he was actually the guy responsible for pulling me when I was a kid into working with the Albuquerque Police Department. He's a legend. Um, and he was in the in the blood and guts era, and he's now in this very like super de-escalating era as well. And he has. He he's one. He is one of the most brilliant police leaders I've ever seen in my life. Like the things that he would do were so anti-intuitive, and then made total sense, and would like uh, just change communities. He's done so much good. Rob DeBuck would be a great guy for that. Excellent, brilliant. Thank you. All right, then the, no the last question before we talk about where we can find you: What do you do to decompress when you're not coaching? Uh, well, in the immediate, I'll either play video games that pull me out into a different world. I will read books. And then if I have time, I go ghost towning, which is where I go find old towns in New Mexico that have been long abandoned and uh, do research on them and find out what they were and then go find them and uh, just kind of poke around. I don't take anything or, uh, you know, it should all stay where it's at. But uh, I find the towns and uh, it's fun because you can backpack into them or you can drive into them and just you get to see uh, a part of history that was very important to people at one time and is now just uh, you watch nature reclaim it. So it's been a lot of fun. I've been doing that since I was a kid. So it's been uh it's been a, a real joy and a pleasure to have that hobby that's very unique yeah i know some of the, the images of the abandoned shopping malls where nature's taken it back and all these trees growing inside is absolutely yeah beautiful. isn't it crazy so yeah having these old towns out here you be in, in new mexico we have old hispanic towns from like the 1600s and we have when the anglos started coming and the uh in the 1800s and then modern stuff. Yeah, it's just crazy. The mining towns from like the 1950s that have been abandoned. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun out here. Right. Now, are you seeing any of the the inter, um, 
Oh my god, what am I talking about? The uh, I'm blanking on the name now. The border. So the, <laughs> the, the inter-border violence from, from the drug trade where you are? No, because we're kind of a pass-through, right? There's not a lot of, because we're such a poor state, um, there's not a lot of, I mean, there is some, but mostly um, if they're going to move drugs and stuff, they're going to, they do it through us because of the the big I interchange, which is where I-25 and I-40 meet. So, you, you know, you want to go up to Denver, over to Phoenix or Dallas, um, but in New Mexico itself, I mean, there is obviously some, but mostly it's that we're a transitory, they're trying to move the drugs through us. Uh, into bigger markets. Okay, well, good. Yeah, that's that's something I've talked about a lot on the on the podcast. Is there's uh, countries like Switzerland and Portugal. I actually interviewed the guy that did it in Portugal that have decriminalized drug use, and it basically cut the head off the snake of the of the right. illegal drug trade. Absolutely, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, and definitely, we're moving that direction. Um, it's just mostly because we uh, we we have so many violent people here. We need to get the people with marijuana problems, in my opinion, kind of out of jail and get these violent criminals off the street. Absolutely, and the the human traffickers, like we said. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well, Greg, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. I know you're extremely busy, so I really do appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Oh no worries. Thanks for having me on, boss. Uh, it was a lot of fun.